0: You are listening to the EFCA West podcast. I'm Tim Jacobs, District Superintendent of EFCA West, and your host for today's podcast. You know, one of the purposes of this podcast is to showcase the amazing pastors and leaders that we have here in EFCA West. You know, we're about 200 congregations spread out over seven states, and the more I get to know, who we are on an individual basis the the people the pastors and the leaders the more grateful i am to be efca so we're going to do that today i'm going to talk to a guy i've just been dying to talk to this guy for about a year i've been planning this and but before we do that i want to remind you of something do you know we have got a district conference coming up january 21st and 22nd i know it's not till next year but my friends we are going to get through 2020 It's going to happen, and it's going to be 2021. So at North Coast Church, North San Diego County area, California, where the weather's always perfect, we are going to hopefully be able to be together in person. We'll give you more details. But regardless, you'll be hearing from such illustrious voices as Larry Osborne, Kevin Complin, the president of our denomination, Ricky Jenkins, who's pastor of Southwest Community Church, Todd Bolsinger, Katie Dudgeon, who's with Reach Global, and of course, yours truly, along with so many other people that we'll have the chance to interact with along the way. So sign up and do it now and sign up everybody that you know, your team, your, your spouse, people you like to hang out with. It's going to be great. So there you go. Now, again, what makes EFCA West so great are the people. And one of them is a guy named Brian Chan, who is the lead pastor of Emanuel Church in Burbank, California. Now, Burbank, you know, that's where the showbiz crowd is. And really, Brian is a part of that showbiz crowd. He just fits in. He's he's become a part of that. And so uh, we're going to talk about today what it's like to be a pastor in Burbank, in the center, in the artistic capital of the world, and what do the arts have to do with Christianity and ministry and mission and all that kind of stuff. But I got to tell you, in addition to being a lead pastor, he's also a professor at Biola University and Talbot School of Theology. He's a published author and most impressively, at least to me, a Kung Fu master, So, as I said, we're going to talk about the arts and the role in church and ministry and all that kind of stuff. So, Brian, man, it's great to have you with us today. How's it going?
1: Thank you, Tim. It's good to be here with you. Thanks for the honor of this. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. So, before we kind of kick into things, so tell us about Biola and Talbot. What what do you teach there? What's your involvement there? I'm curious.
1: Yeah, thanks. I've been teaching at Biola University for 13 years now, going on 14 And I'm part of a a series of classes called the integration classes, which is basically integrating some aspect of culture with theology. So I started off there teaching art in the Bible, and then I taught mostly beauty and spirituality, which is a theology of beauty and how it blends with culture and spiritual life. I taught um, theology of heroes and villains, and currently right now I teach for the School of Cinema, Media, Arts, and Talbot, um, co-teaching a class called Faith and Film. So it's blending faith with our theological perspectives and our, and, uh, and film.
0: Wow. That's a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so part of that though, you wrote a book that's called the purple curtain. It's available on Amazon cause I went to make sure that it was living yeah. out beauty in faith and culture from a biblical perspective. So that's part of your whole, you know, your teaching, uh, the stuff that you teach over at Iola and Talbot.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think at the probably at a core passion of mine it is the subject of a theology of beauty and how it integrates very practically with our spiritual lives and how we integrate with culture.
0: Okay, so standpoint. yeah, so that's I want to just like get into that because I have so many questions for you on that because you probably are aware of this, but this is not. You know, this isn't like a topic like, you know, sanctification or discipleship. It's like kind of like the run of the mill, not that those are bad things, but the theology of beauty. What do we mean when we say that?
1: Yeah, you know, and this all started for me from my master's thesis at Dallas Seminary. And it started with the beauty of God. And what I discovered um, during seminary was how much God portrays himself as being beautiful. And he uses a language in terms of of aesthetics and beauty to describe himself, even to express the kinds of things that he does um, for his people. Uh, Recreation, redemption, oftentimes are couched in language of the arts and aesthetics. So that started me down this path, and it's become a major passion of mine. And then seeing how the beauty of God doesn't just contain to God himself without relevance to the world. Frankly... You know, the way that the beauty is defined by who God is, what God does, and what he says connects very intricately with society, with the way that we live life, uh, what how we define our own self-identity. So it's very pertinent, very relevant in those ways. Um, but this is a huge topic uh, alone. You know, if, if you just kind of gave me like a, an open blank so I can go on forever on this subject.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, what. Like, what do we talk? What is beauty, and, and why is it important?
1: Yeah. So, beauty defined biblically. Now, that's the, that's the first important point to to make. Because in contemporary day, most people say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right. That's like the most common phrase you'll hear, and it, it gives a sense that beauty started with society, with you know people inventing it. But when you look at scripture, the important point is to see that God invented beauty in Genesis one and two. In Genesis 1, when he used the word good, that Hebrew word tov actually implies aesthetic beauty, um, attractiveness, or pleasure. Um, And so the word good was the first establishment of beauty and what God called to be beautiful. And beauty, uh, in a nutshell, again, reflects his character, who he is, um, his actions, what he does, and his truth, what he says. So biblically defined beauty is defined by God's character, and his personhood first and foremost, and then that bleeds in and translates out into our world. And and one of the fascinating things of why this is important is because that people ultimately are striving for a vision of beauty, whether it's a vision of beauty in themselves, like who they are as a person, how they look, or a vision of beauty for their lives. What is a good life? A beautiful life? You know, a meaningful life? Or they're trying to strive for a vision of beauty in what they do, what they create. You know, what their actions and efforts amount to. So we strive for beauty and as the early church fathers and theologians and apologists have said before especially saint augustine they, they say that we strive, we love we have affection for what is beautiful so whatever is our paradigm of beauty that helps us define what beauty is and that's what we strive for so beauty becomes like a target it's a target that we aim for we try to achieve, achieve that but what is so important about that is that because society has its own paradigms of beauty over time socially constructed forms of beauty, whether it's decadent beauty or sexualized um, definitions of beauty, if it's not a biblically defined paradigm of beauty, it means that our target then could be a miss. You know, what we're mm-hmm. actually end up striving for may be an amiss target.
0: You know, I've thought about that a lot, you know. So if I were to say is is an aspect of beauty, is it like is it kind of like when you see it it's like the essence of maybe what you you perceive the, like the way things should be right like you see mm-hmm. something that's beautiful and it's like like it, it it it's like that's the way it should be or like like that's the essence of what you you would hope to see or hope to find you know and and in a physical sense like if you look at a sunset or something like that and you see the beauty there but like there's almost more to it than what you see right there's like it almost it like says something. I don't know. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's at least uh, three points along with what you just said there that's really theologically true, one of which is because we're made in the image of God. We bear this, this sense in our own spirit, in our own humanity, what God bore in his own heart. When he desired to create the universe to be beautiful, we have that taste, that appetite also for beauty. We have that sense for beauty. You know, So that's why when we look at something like the sunset, You know, or um, the stars. There's something about us that it resonates with us. We find hope in what is beautiful. We find inspiration in what is beautiful. It resonates with our deeper humanity. The second part to it is because God made it a reality in creation. We're always going back to the original. You know, the origin, how we were originally made, and what connects with us. But then the, the the third part of this, and that you alluded to, basically is. There's a combination of beauty and brokenness now, you know, because of the fault. So what you said was, you know, the way things are and the way things ought to be. Well, we have a sense of the way things ought to be because we're also affected by the fault, the brokenness, the ugliness of our world. And we know it's not supposed to be that way because that's not the way God made it, nor is it the final destination in the grand narrative that the Lord is, is unfolding. We know that there ought to be something else, that ugliness is not supposed to be the final destination is supposed to be beauty.
0: Yeah. And so, like, if you, without even realizing it, I think, is, isn't, would you say that's the reason that we're attracted to beauty? Because we, when we see something that reminds us of the way at least things should be, and in that we see life and we see like something that is captivating. And, and I think obviously there's right and wrong ways to deal with that. But when we, are, when we see beauty, like you said, we see the difference between what is and what should be, and we want that thing of what should be. But then we so easily misplace it because we think that in and of itself is the thing that we want as opposed to that which has made it and that which sustains it. You know what I'm saying?
1: That's right. Yeah, that's exactly what I think St. Augustine referred to. He says that beauties of the world ought to refer to the beauty of God, ought to point to the beauty mm. of God. So even the beauties that we see in this world, they're icons, they're symbols mm-hmm, that point mm-hmm. us toward the greater beauty. That's I think that's what Psalm 19 is ultimately telling us. You know, even a non-believer, when when they're out in Yosemite and they're looking at the mountains and the waterfalls, and they 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 capture this beautiful scenery that's so magnificent and majestic. They bear a sense of something greater out there, a greater beauty. You know, and, and I think that's why God is so passionate about beauty because it it ultimately expresses His glory. And that's another Hebrew and, and Greek word for beauty, which is the word glory. And and I, I think when when I've asked people in workshops I've taught, you know, how do you define beauty, um, if you had to say one word, and they would say words like radiance, glorious, luminous, you know, uh, shining. You know, it's all the words that revolve around that biblical understanding of beauty, which is glory that ultimately points to God's glory. You know, and I I think you know when we even when we look at probably what we more commonly understand or perceive beauty to be, which is like in cosmetics, fashion, you know, more beauty on the surface. And when you see people striving for that, um, you see that it's symbolic. It's symbolic of a craving within their humanity of what beauty they're really seeking after. Because when you ask somebody, well, why do you want to be attractive on the outside? You know, it's, it's to feel dignified. It's to feel honored. Mm-hmm. It's to feel accepted. You know, it's is that kind of beauty that, That I think Adam and Eve found prior to the fall you know their their acceptance before the Lord their sense of dignity and honor without shame you know that's exactly what happened right after at the point of the fall they hid themselves there was a sense of shame you know and so us now trying to grasp in all these various ways whether it's in cosmetics or fashion or workouts you know how we look on the outside it's trying to undo that ugliness that we feel in the in the fallen nature and trying to grasp what we know to be true in our humanity as God intended for it to be, for us to be beautiful.
0: Yeah, and I, so this is such an interesting topic because if you can recognize that and you can step outside, like, if like, and again, say, let's say we're talking about like, you know, cosmetics or, you know, for those of us that are guys, you know, you see a beautiful woman and and so much in scripture talks about, you know, the issue of lust and looking at a beautiful woman, and, and it's almost like, well, I, I shouldn't look at a beautiful woman at all because I'm just going to lessen. It just takes you down the, the bad path. But I mean, your, your only hope is like just, you know, if your eyes cause you to sin, gouge it out. I mean, you know, rather than freaking out all the time, just be able to look at someone and go, hey, I have to be reminded that there's a God in heaven who's even way more beautiful than that. And then move on. You know what I'm saying? I, I just think that there's like a, a tool to be had there.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up this point, too, uh, in terms of about how men relate to beauty. And from the standpoint of being receivers, and you're, you're talking about us as an audience, you know, there's a standpoint of people who try to become beautiful, attractive, and there's a standpoint of those who are actually the audience, and we're the audience, right? And how do we look at somebody else who's very attractive? And there's that, that, um, that struggle, that struggle where after biting the apple or the fruit, you know, evil was introduced into the mind. And so now we have the propensity and the ability to lust. And I think one of the things that you said um, triggers an important point, which is what Ephesians 2.10 says, that we are God's craftsmanship. And and an important point about um, how we can see differently is that we're being recreated by God. Mm -hmm. And that involves our mind being recreated. And then you get something like Romans 8, where Paul says you got to choose through which paradigm you're going to be thinking with. Is it the mind of the flesh or a mind of the spirit? right? So there's a choice that we have in terms of a reworking our mind and being able to see through the eyes of God. And perhaps a practical question could be is when, in that moment, when a, a guy is encountering an attractive woman or vice versa, when a woman is attractive, you know, a counter-attractive guy, a practical question is, well, how does God see this person? Mm-hmm. You know, help me, Lord, to see this person the way you do. Mm-hmm. Have a mind of the Spirit. Let me not see this person through the mind of the flesh, the fallen nature that was corrupted when that knowledge of evil entered in, you know. But how do you see this person, God? And I think that's part of our sanctification, you know, step by step of how our mind is being transformed to see differently, see reality differently, to see people differently. And then by that, we start to apply more of a biblical framework of beauty um, as we do that on an ongoing basis.
0: Yeah. I think, yeah, you put it much more articulately than I did. I, I, I think that, you know, obviously if there's a woman who's presenting herself seductively and whatever, it's like, okay, well, but I'm just saying in everyday life, you know, you see these people and you go, oh, wow, what a beautiful, and rather than just being like, you know, captivated by that alone, it's like you said, the renewing of the mind and say, wait a second, God, help me to see everybody the way that you see them and to see behind some of the things that, that are, you know, right in front of me. And what are the, what are the forces? And, what are the uh, the motivations behind even, like you said, like the cosmetics industry, that even that is, in, in some ways, points to the need. In other words, like if there wasn't any standard, if there wasn't anything beyond what we have now, then why would e- anybody even strive for that? But they're trying to recreate or patch together or piece together something that's almost impossible because we know there's something more out there,
1: right? right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's another important point I think that you alluded to, which is, that we have to understand there are different paradigms of aesthetics out there. Mm -hmm. You know, our industry knows that sex sells, you know. So even a a simple product of cosmetics can be portrayed in a very sexual way, can be sexualized, you know. Um, And to know that that's a paradigm in which it's socially constructed. But we don't have to see it through that paradigm. As redeemed people, we know there is another paradigm that's more aligned with what God intended and aligned with God's word. And we just have to know what that paradigm of aesthetics is, according to God's word, and choose to see through it that way versus these others. I think what I encounter a lot when I teach these workshops on beauty and aesthetics is that most people don't think about the paradigm. They just submit themselves to it. It's automatic. Right. What they grew up with is what they're surrounded with. So it seems like that's the the geist of, of the culture mm-hmm. and there's no other choice but rather really there are dozens of paradigms out there and one of which is a biblical paradigm by which you can choose to see through.
0: Yeah, I, I it's, that that's so good. One of the questions I had for you is why why does it seem like Christians tend to ignore this or skip over it or or just they don't we don't typically know how to deal with this very well. And why do you think that is?
1: Well, um, you know, I think that um, I think there's some historical aspects to this, you know, where there was a period where the modern church had largely divorced itself from the aesthetics, the arts and and culture, divorced it from faith. Because I think that in history, we saw that a lot of the arts um, may have represented a lot of secularism. So I think, you know, from things that I've studied and read in, in history, the church perceived that that's worldly. So they classified it as worldly, you know. Abstract expressionism, modern arts, you know, various forms of music, because it's worldly, then the church pulled away. And now what's fascinating is what I've noticed in the last you know, 20 plus years, since at least the mid to late 90s, is the church is trying to find its way back to being integrated with culture. Because we've seen that missionally, it has been a disservice to us to be separated from culture. And so now we're trying to find our way back. But what we lack is a lot of that heritage that our church largely had. The early church through the medieval church had largely had um, a sense of how the aesthetics merge with faith. And they had the eyes to see that. So when you read it like in, in, you know, in scriptures, you see you can if you look for it, uh, you'll see aesthetics utilized throughout scriptures. The arts, whether it's dance, music, poetry, narrative, storytelling, you know, visual painting through words, you know, it, it's all through scripture and, and and how God chooses to reveal theological truths through the aesthetics. So it's all there, but I think we're now needing to, to try to find our way back and and seeing how we can integrate with this again. But unless we have a, um, a, a basis, a scriptural basis for seeing this, for seeing the aesthetics, it's automatically ignored. It's just something that just doesn't um, factor into our normal way of looking at things, especially when it comes to faith.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was in the office of a pastor recently and he had a, uh, a reprint and it was pretty large in his office of the, of Rembrandt's um, return of the prodigal son, that painting. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it's called. At least that's the name of the book by uh, now that I read that had it on the front. There's a really powerful book. And while we were sitting in the office, I was like staring at that painting and I thought, man, you know, cause I remember when I read the book and, and it, but he had this, it was a large copy of it, you know, on the wall. And I thought, man, that's so, that's so beautiful. It's so amazing. And there's so much power in the picture itself. And, and it's, I, I don't know that we have, a, do we have modern day equivalents of that, like in the, in the painting genre? I don't know, I don't, I don't even really know. Yeah,
1: there are definitely people creating, uh, even contemporary artists like uh, Magoto Fujimura is probably a great example known by many Christians of his um, abstract expressionism and just how meaningful and deep his works are, even though they're not representational pieces or realism. It speaks to people, you know, in the way that um, he uses colors and um, I can't even uh, very rightly describe his works. Um, What's his name? Are, Magoto Fujimura, Fujimura, F-U-J-I-M-U-R-A. Hmm. And for a while, he was leading up the, I believe, the the Brem Center over at Fuller Seminary. But he's a well-known artist in New York, has a couple of galleries there. And at one time, I believe he was appointed as the um, chair of the National Arts Council by uh, W. Bush. Um, so, you know, he's one of those guys that's out there. And, you um, You know, there are others as well, too. There are others that are making some good headway in this and creating some just beautiful stuff. I was part of an art um, project in New York, which was they were illuminating the whole Bible. So we all got scripture passages, and that was our section to illuminate. And it's a compilation of pieces. So you'll find modern installations, uh, abstract expressionism, realism, you know. So there are efforts that are being made, you know, and I'm proud to see those efforts being made, you know. And some of those efforts, I think, may be couched in, Kind of a more religious setting. Some of those efforts are integrated with what we would consider to be the secular market and secular settings. So you know that stuff is is out there. And I'm from the film side of it, I'm meeting, you know, filmmakers, producers, writers, directors who are strong believers. And they're working in the in the major industry and in studios and they're doing their stuff, you know, applying a redemptive perspective as Christ's followers to what they're doing. And it's prou- I'm proud to see stuff like that taking place. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, because as long as we're on the subject, I, I think that oftentimes, um, and I, I, I'm so I so apologize about my ignorance about different types of art. But, you know, the realism, like you talked about, I mean, that I think is easily or, you know, Christians tend to say, or to value those kind of paintings that depict, uh, you know, the, the realism or like, okay, this is clearly the Virgin Mary, or this is clearly Jesus hanging on the cross. This is clearly the, the Apostle Paul but that more subtle art or even like the abstract stuff or even some of the modern modern art that's just like a color or two or three colors. And people go, ah, you know, anybody could do that or that's not. But there's like times I've seen pictures like that and and the colors are beautiful. And that, like, it's not a picture of anything really. It's just like, it just reminds me of something. And I go, man, that's just, and I am kind of captivated by that. I mean, is there, so I mean, is, that, is there a place for, for a Christian artist who just, you know, looks like he's painting something that people go, oh, I don't know what that is, but, but is there could there be some more meaning behind that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is a big debate that happens a lot of times.
1: Yeah, I think it largely probably comes from sometimes, um, you know, maybe a lack of understanding of certain genres, like abstract expressionism, mm-hmm. but there is no genre that is more godly than another, <laughs> you know, the genres mm-hmm. are, are various styles. Um, and they speak to people in different ways, you know? And so where we still, I still find a lot of Kincaid lovers, you know, romantic, romanticized realism, you know, and and there's a lot of folks who still, that, that speaks them. I've actually gotten to share the gospel a lot through a Kincaid painting before in the past, Mm. you know, and there are those where, when, when, I've gone to the art walks in downtown LA, you know, most of it's abstract and some of them are, I've encountered very powerful, you know, they, they really speak. And, um, So there is no, I I think that's one of the misnomers we have to dispel because it can very easily diminish the artist in your church. You know, Mm. if, if an artist in your church is an abstract expressionist, I'm now moved from realism to I'm categorized as a conceptual artist now. And oftentimes when I'm in an art show, I'm placed in the category of contemporary abstract <laughs> you know i didn't start off that way but i now am categorizing that and everyone, I, I think um in my art association here at burbank they they know i'm a pastor and and all that and um but there is no art genre that is more godly than the other you know there there's it's like styles of music you know
0: yeah yeah well okay well yeah it, it's funny because that's not necessarily a given to a lot of people either because there's certain You know, there's seen as styles of music that are that that I do think people think are 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 higher or more sophisticated than others, and you know maybe maybe that might be true to some degree, but like you said, more godly than another. But you know, it's another thing that I think about on this too. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about this a while ago, and okay, so tell me what you think about this, because. I think that, you know, we see a lot of Christian films and there's been a lot of Christian like films that have come out in the last, you know, to really compete at the Hollywood level. And, and a lot of people criticize them as being like cheese ball and stuff like that. And, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and even like Christian music, sometimes I think the reason why is because it's a, it lacks subtlety, right? So I think, um, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, I think a lack of subtlety in christian art artistic expression is what gives it that cheeseball factor like they don't they they're they're so they're so intent on making sure that the message gets across that they force they force conversations they force scenes they force events to happen to kind of line up perfectly with the theology they're trying to get across as opposed to depicting real life and and letting those themes kind of emerge without being so uh, apparent does that make sense
1: yeah, I, I understand completely what you mean. And I think the, the key word that you said in there is when when a message feels forced and the audience picks up on that. You know, and it anytime that you do something that takes people out of the story, that's problematic. Mm. You know, anytime that people start to feel like suddenly they're like sitting in, in a church service with a preacher in front of them and they're not in a story anymore, that's problematic. And I think the way that we have to think of um, truth in stories is just like the way you would think of a great storyline where you are journeying with the character and as a character discovers aha moments the audience discovers aha mom- moments with the character you know so you don't have to have a, a poignant time in the in the story where I got a break for a sermonette you know or the other aspect the second I think is oftentimes when we we don't give respect to the problem and the pain in the story. Every story has a problem and a pain. Mm. You know, when we don't give respect to it, that's another reason why oftentimes a a story can come across as cheesy or trite is because we haven't given respect. You know, we haven't really dealt with the the pain and the struggles that people really go through. So if you're going to make a movie about depression, well you got to really understand what depression is and really go there and and address it. And maybe sometimes uh, for Christians, we might be afraid of that that darkness, that ugliness, you know, mm. that um, we don't want to go that far. We want to go to the hope of Jesus right away. Um, but if there's one thing that the cross has taught us, is that our brokenness is truly messy. You know, um, when Jesus bore our shame, there was no softening of that, you know. Um, so I think it, it, good story writing, good craft is really important for a story to not come across as trite.
0: And And you don't, Yeah, so I I, because I feel like the it's almost like the story becomes secondary to the message we're trying to get across.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I don't want to tell people that whatever is that conviction they have in their heart that they need to diminish it, you know. But what I've often seen more is if you bring up the level of your craft, you know, versus oftentimes I think people have their conviction, the content so far above their craft and so it feels like that's what people are getting when you're watching that film or reading that story is that all you're getting is the content you know and that's why Mm -hmm. it feels forced because the craft hasn't been elevated to meet the level of the content the craft is an important vehicle in which the content um takes place you know and and what i mean by like good story writing it's oftentimes you know those aha moments in the in the film it's like two minutes long that's it two Mm -hmm. minutes out of like An hour and a half or a two-hour film, and all you need is that two minutes because you've done so well telling the story that when those two minutes hit, it hits you, you know, and and it it drives in deep because the story was told very well, and you've been the audience has been journeying with the character, so when that aha moment comes, it's it's like a a very powerful you know light piercing through, and I don't need to give fifteen minutes to explaining something, you know what I mean? (laughs) That's that that comes with good craftsmanship, I think.
0: Yeah, I, that's that's a really important point. So so basically, we've dissected why Christian films, and not all of them. And I and I, my heart goes out to a lot of these guys too, because I know they they really are trying to create content that is uplifting and meaningful, and you know that can counter so much of the the garbage that we get in an IV drip all the time through every possible way that our kids are exposed to. And, and, and I know that they're just probably hated by so many people in Hollywood or whatever they're, you know, mocked. And so my heart goes out to a lot of those guys, but I was, I've always wanted to just dissect or understand what is it that makes that particular film different than like, you know, the, the, the the quote unquote secular film. And I think you're I think what you're saying is the, the, the respect comes from, from the storytelling and the ability to be able to really explain the human condition in a way that the, the truth is in the story as opposed to the little, you know, the, the dialogue that no one's really going to have with the other person, you know, like yeah, it, it's, yeah. it that just feels like this is artificial. You're trying to like jam this in here.
1: And that's that's the key word you said there. It feels artificial. And I think what people want from a story is a sense of authenticity. They want to feel like this is authentic. And I think that's what our society craves for right now, you know, and um, some of the the comments I've I've read from people when they've praised a a song or a story is is the comment, it's so real. Mm. You know, it's so real. Mm -hmm. And and it could, you know, your story could be fictional, it could be sci-fi, it could be fantasy. But there's a realness to it, you know, and um, and that's that's the problem when a, a film sounds preachy, I think it doesn't feel real, you know. Mm-hmm. You feel like you're at an infomercial.
0: Well, and and I think it. I mean, I, and I'm, we're not the first ones to talk about this, but but you you know, in almost every great film, you see redemptive themes that the writer maybe didn't even intend to right. convey. But it goes back it goes back to that discussion about beauty though. It's like you can't help if you're doing something that captures people, it can't help in some ways point them to at least the need for God or the reality of God or the or the need for redemption, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just yes. like you think of all these films and why do we sell why is the thing that we celebrate more than anything else this idea that one person gives their life for another? And it's like for some reason we're just attuned to to just weep and be captivated at, at that particular kind of event, no matter how you dress up the setting.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know, whether it's a Christian film, we coin it as whatever, that's debated too, what exactly is a Christian film? Right. Whether it's a Christian film or a non-Christian film, the aspects of like a Messiah archetype, you know, those mm-hmm. uh, truth moments, redemptive moments, those are common in stories. And I think going back to an earlier question you had asked um, about the church, an important theological point that the church has to reclaim and understand is common grace. I think common mm. grace is a very robust theological premise for why the church and how the church can be integrated with society and culture. Understanding common grace and the lordship of Jesus Christ over all sectors of culture is important. And to see that even non-Christians can make redemptive films and write redemptive stories.
0: Um, and I Wow. Think that's a- point yeah i mean because i don't know that everybody thinks that that that's a bit of a controversial thing there's some people in certain circles that might really freak out about that but but what you're saying is they could do that without even necessarily being able to help themselves
1: yeah it's no different from like when god says i'm gonna call king cyrus he won't know me but i'm gonna he's gonna be used by me you know Mm. um or one of the very encouraging examples I think of is how C.S. Lewis came to faith. Um, J.R. Tolkien was the one who con- made the connection for Lewis between the Norse god Balder, who was also a son of God that died, and Jesus. You know, and, and that there was a connection in there where it made sense for Lewis, and um, and that's how Lewis, you know, came to faith in the Lord. And it's um, and I think that this is important for us because. Our churches can react in a more fear-based mentality, a fear of what's out there. Now, we have to be wise still, and we, we have to still apply a mind of Christ and what we watch, you know, and the choices we make. So it's not like we just open up the, the doors wide open and have no filter. We still do, you know. Um, at the same time, it's just, there's a tension between that and also not being so fearful and that thinking that Jesus somehow isn't Lord over Netflix or Jesus isn't Lord over Amazon Prime. Jesus is Lord over all aspects of society, and he can work in there, you Mm. know? And that's part of common grace is that God is sovereign enough to work in all areas for the sake that people might get a taste of God and that people might find God. That's the whole point of common grace.
0: That's a powerful concept. And it, you know, like when you see a painting or something that's totally just intended to be a secular painting, maybe it's of a landscape or something, but it, 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 it hits you in a certain way. And it's like to ask yourself, why does this hit me? What is it about this that hits me? What does this remind me of? Um, you know, and even going back to your statement about Lewis, I remember reading somewhere that I, I think what, what he had said was that when he, when he, he, yeah, cause he looked at these different myth mythologies and whatnot. And when he looked, when he compared that to Christianity, he said into the story of Jesus, he said, basically, um, there has to be something that's true. And if there was ever anything that was, that could be true, it's gotta be this, like, this has to be, this particular story has to be the true one like this, this had to have happened or, or, you know, there's, there's no reason for anything kind of a thing. And that was like one of the things that, that tipped him over the, over the edge, but it was that, it was that integration because these other stories, it's not like they're all wrong. They just, I mean, they're wrong, but they're not. They're not just completely out of left field. Their attempts to try to explain the, what what is around us, they just miss it in some way.
1: Right, right. And that's the whole point. Of, that's common grace. There is that.
0: Yeah. In
1: some level, common grace is sustaining some level of goodness and truth in these other myths, stories, or pagan cultural things. You know. And I think that um, as a Christian who wants to be integrated with culture and wise about the arts and aesthetics, we are. We need to be theologically informed of knowing how to point out what is not of God and then point out this is of God. And it's not throwing the whole thing out necessarily. You know, It's not like this whole genre of art or this whole genre of music has to be bad. You know, mm-hmm. um, but that There's something where Christ is working in that. And for us to discover where the Holy Spirit is working, that's something we celebrate and that ought to speak to us. So we could watch a secular film in a theater And have it speak to us, you know, illuminate um, scripture to us, even.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That
1: might sound a little dangerous (laughs) for some.
0: Well, but I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we're talking this thing through because you're right in the center of it all, right? And I mean, you are, like you mentioned before, you've been involved in art projects. You said you're the member of the Burbank Art Society. What, what is it? Yeah,
1: Art Association, yeah.
0: Okay, and so what's that What's that like? I mean, I don't know any other pastor that's the member of an art society, at least in my circle.
1: Yeah, so it's a, um, a city-based um, association of artists and we, we generally meet once a month. Um, and we do art shows together, you know, there, there's through it, there's usually opportunities, uh, of art shows either hosted directly by the association or opportunities connected with the association. So I get to hang out with these other artists in Burbank and there's about a, a hundred of us or so, uh, in this association and, um, and we do shows together, you know, um, we get to know each other's arts and we get to have art debuts together and it's a whole lot of fun.
0: They know you're a pastor.
1: They know I'm a pastor. Yeah. Initially, I don't think they did, <laughs> but then as they start to inquire about my work and about who I am and what I do and stuff, they, they start to slowly find out I'm a pastor.
0: And how do they react to that? Because artists typically tend to not be the most, uh, you know, they, they tend to be non-religious people.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know who's a Christian and who's not in, in that uh, association, um, uh, but I think what I've discovered is as an artist, whether you're a writer, actor, visual artist, um, if you do what you do well as an artist, you have people's respect, hmm. you know? And I think that's what, when I entered the Art Association, I entered as an artist, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I wanted mm-hmm. to do my work really well. And I wanted to contribute to the association and their efforts where I could. And so once they knew me as an artist, I think they knew me as an artist for about a year before um, people started, you know, Discovering very naturally, organically, that I was also a pastor. Um, so there was, you know, there was nothing really as far as um, people were already picking up that there are spiritual elements in my artwork because <laughs> I would have people say to me, "Your work has always has something spiritual in it." It seems, you know, and it's it, like you said, it's subtle, subtle in a way where I don't know it might be like an angel in the steampunk, you know, kind of <laughs> piece, hmm. you know, or I, I did a recent piece called "Stewarding Time" and it was my reflections about time and the sacredness of time. Um, and how we steward it responsibly and faithfully, you know. So people always perceive something spiritual in my works.
0: Is there like Before if, if I yeah? So if I want to go look at your artwork, is it anywhere that I can go check it out?
1: Yeah, um, I have a I have a website, briancchan.com, dot um, which I need to upload some more more recent works on there um, since COVID. I've been a little slacking on that. And I have a artist Facebook page. It's also Brian C. Chan. Now C is S-E-E, not the letter C. It's my Chinese middle name. So it's Brian S-E-E Chan. Uh-huh. So that's both for my uh, website, briancchan.com and my Facebook artist page.
0: Okay. Yeah. And so so if for pastors and church leaders that are listening to this, because that's our main audience, I think what a lot of people are thinking right now. This is kind of a cool conversation about arts and maybe some things that they we hadn't really thought about before, or at least discussed at any great length with anybody. But most of us are not in Burbank, and you know, not in the showbiz kind of community. Um, and so we're you know out in places where there there are some artists, and then there's people who think they're artists and are not, Um, or I don't know how to respectfully, you know, deal with that issue. But like, what would you say to a ministry leader, to a pastor? I mean, it doesn't have to be a senior pastor all the time. I mean, a lot of times student ministry pastor, um, even children's ministry or other types of who are going, you know, how do I, how do I encourage, like you, you said something so good a few minutes ago and you're like, be careful about how you treat like the abstract impressionist artist You know, don't sit there and go, man. What's that? You know, and and assume that it doesn't have any meaning. How do we how do we shepherd and and uh, shepherd to to all the way to showcase or or engage, um, develop the artists in our church and among us.
1: Yeah, I always say to folks whenever I've done these kinds of um, workshops addressing this question, um, having a, a theology of the arts as a premise, I think, is one of the most first important things. And here's the reason why it's because most of us have an assumed theological value for the typical ministries in our churches, like Sunday school classes, um, small group ministries. You know, so if a pastor were asked, hey, can you tell me biblically why we have to have small groups? Why should I join a small group? Most pastors can probably find several verses and explain in a very compelling way why you should be in fellowship, why you should be in small group ministry, why you should learn the word of God or, or Sunday school class is important. But how many of us really can give a compelling answer to someone who might be a struggling, budding, creative person and say and ask, you know, can you give me a biblical reason for why the arts is important in church? Hmm. And a lot of times the answer I tend to hear is not a biblical answer for that. What I hear is an answer of social relevance that most pastors I have spoken to will say, well, we need to have the arts because it's relevant to our society today. It's where our contemporary culture is at today. Well, that kind of an answer doesn't have the same grounding or weight as when you can provide 10 verses for why you should be in small groups, you know? So the other answer where it's about relevance to current cultures seems shifty. It seems more about the world. It seems more about uh, pragmatic, you know, functionality than having something more of an intrinsic value that an artist can say, yeah, this is what I'm called to do and how I'm going to serve Jesus with my talent and my gift, you know? So I think having a theology of the arts uh, as, a, as a premise is very important because out of that premise will flow the practice, how you will actually practice the arts being cultivating your church, how you will mobilize artists, how you identify them. And then the other thing I would say is out of a the theology of the arts, you're going to discover that the assumption we have about creatives and artists will change hmm. because the way we think of creatives and artists oftentimes is filtered through how society defines an artist, you know? But I would say operate out of the assumption that there are probably far more creatives and artists in your church than you have realized. Hmm. And once you provide that theological premise and that sense of value, and you start opening up opportunity, even just opportunity, like you don't have to think of something specific, just open up a conversation even. People start coming out of the woodworks. And that's what I've experienced is when I provide that theological vision or that premise for why the arts are valued theologically. And I start creating opportunity for People just to surface, you know, people start coming out of the woodworks with it. And the, the creative types of disciplines may not be what you expect. It might not be your oil painter. You know, it might be someone who makes wood crafts. You know, it might be someone who does metalwork. You know, it, it could be someone who, who works with dioramas. You know, that's art in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mm-hmm. could do some cool things with that. So um, and then the third, I would say from there is then you grant you create a, an environment where you create a, a sense of freedom. For people to express ideas you know especially when the kind of creatives you may get are not your what you may traditionally expect you know it's not your oil painter or acrylic painter there, there are other folks out there but once you create that space of freedom people will start to feel energized you know they start to apply their ideas and then they'll dream up stuff along with you as a pastor that you might not have ever conceived of you know yeah.
0: Yeah. And so your book, for example, your book, *The Purple Curtain*, would that be some? Would that be a resource that, that a pastor could use to develop a theology of the arts?
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of artists have been using my book, my book over the years, and um, it helps. You know, I, I it's um, couched in a lot of um, biblical exposition, a lot of um, early church, medieval church, you know, font as well too. So you kind of see the heritage. Um, behind um, our Christian faith and when it comes to art and faith.
0: And again, I think we gravitate towards the things that we own that we individually value. And so one of the one of the the challenges is for most lead pastors who are, you know, maybe more academically oriented or even more oriented like in an organizational leadership framework, they're not necessarily, they're not always gifted artists at all. They don't think that way. And so they do tend to devalue it or set it aside or even worse, have a real fear of it because, because, you know, you do see things that, you know, easily it could go, things could go awry or whatever. And that's, that's the big fear. You know, what's interesting to me too is architecture. And I remember, um, I was reading a book by Leonard Sweet and he was talking about these cathedrals from like the medieval times. And he says, you know, like a person would walk in today and they would look they would look up and see this big giant cathedral with, with all of this space, you know, like this big giant vaulted ceilings. And the person would be likely to say, man, that's a lot of wasted space. But the person that built it would say, no, that's God's space. You know, that's God's space. And I was like, oh, I love that. You know, like they just, they built that stuff to build it. But it seems like now... You know, we're when we like, for example, when we build buildings, we're building them on a budget, we're building them like we're trying to say we, when we say, hey, man, we, we, we only spent, you know, X amount of dollars per square foot, like, you know, so we, we're accountable to the people. And it doesn't seem like like building like cathedrals or, or arch, like architecture, artistic architecture Like, it doesn't seem to fit anymore. Do do you have any thoughts on that? Like, because it would seem like, well, why would you spend a million extra dollars for this really cool thing when, or five million extra dollars when you could have given that money to the poor or whatever, you know what I'm saying? So we tend to build our buildings as, as, you know, simply as possible to kind of showcase our own, uh, um, not frugalness, but responsibility financially. And so we ignore maybe what could be spent on something that could be more artistic.
1: Yeah, and I think that, kind of, that ties back into the idea of a theological value. When you think of the cathedrals, whether it's Gothic or Romanesque, you know, the stained glass windows and even just the, the layout of a, of a cathedral, there was a, a theological reason behind it. So the, the architecture was meant to facilitate faith, you know, the, the growing and the fostering of faith. Um, you know, you could tell somebody that God is big, but then you walk into a Gothic cathedral and you see that that vaulted ceiling that goes all the way up, you get that feeling that God is big, you mm. know, and, and this sense of surrendering and submitting to God takes on another meaning. Mm. And this idea that, where, you know, on the, the bottom levels of the cathedral, you have stained glass windows where natural light's pouring through, but then you look up and it gets dark up at the top, you know, um, and that it's the idea of mystery. You know, the higher up you go, it becomes more mysterious and it, it accentuates this loftiness, the transcendence of God. But here's one thing I would say, though, is that for churches that don't have that kind of budget, we have to keep in mind that in our Christian history, it's from the catacombs to the cathedrals. You know, I've been in a, a number of the three of the catacombs in, in Rome and saw some of the spaces of how the early Christians worshipped. And they had art on their on their walls, on, their, on the, the stone, you know. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't uh, elaborate, but it was expressive about hope and covenant and promise. So there's a place for... Art is adaptable. That's the thing, you know, it's adaptable to wherever you're at, whatever you're working with. It, it, it um, you know, it, it fits in to wherever setting you're, you're at as long as it bears the soul of the artist in the artwork, as long as it is authentic, meaningful, and it, and it has some resemblance of good craftsmanship, meaning that there was care. Of skill that was put into it. Right. You know, we, were, we were just slapping things on, you know, and it communicates. It will communicate. And, and the thing with the arts in the worship setting is that you feel like you're enveloped in it. Mm-hmm. You know, you're enveloped in, in a, an aesthetic setting that communicates um, aspects of truth, theology, and faith. And then you take the arts from the church into the community. And now you're, you're it's a whole nother realm, you know, that you're entering into.
0: Yeah, because I could see that, and I think that's going to be continue to be important to you know like the stuff that you do, and you're part of this art artist community. And there's like nobody, there would be nobody else in their life that could be able to communicate with them at that level, and you know nothing else they could really appreciate, you know, out there that other than you know seeing something that's like, hey, this is what I do too, and they can appreciate the art and they can appreciate the artist and then maybe want to learn more about you and what you believe. So, so um, you're, again, you're in Burbank. I, I just wanted to ask you briefly, like, so you got a lot of, tell us about some of the people that you have in your church and how have you tried to engage them and use their talents in, in your ministry to kind of move things forward?
1: Yeah. So that is a constantly evolving kind of question, depending on who I get you know, what we're facing in the times that we're in. and uh, But it's always driven by the same theological premise. And some examples of things that we've done in my church, um, I've had act- our professional actors act out scripture um, in a service. Hmm. So to try to bring certain words of Jesus or a, um, a parable to life, you know. We've had artwork on our church walls. We featured some, vis- uh, some of the paintings of our visual artists um, in like the first there's like always that first five to 10 minutes when people are just entering the church. Well, it's a contemplation piece. So they have a moment where they, have, they can contemplate on the piece while there's worship music playing as people are entering in and grabbing their coffees. We've done that. I started a film ministry, which, you know, once I started these things, people were easily mobilized. I didn't have to like twist anyone's arms to, to do this stuff. And it's like the, the artists were just waiting for an opportunity to be able to apply what they're passionate about and what they're good at. When you um, say
0: film we, ministry, what, what does that mean? Yeah.
1: A film ministry um, um, it's a crew of people um, led by one point person who would make various types of films. So some of the films may capture stories like testimonies of people, but we try to tell it through a narrative and we film it like mm. it's a narrative of that person. Um, we were just on the brink of before COVID creating um, fictional um, stories that may be shorts like five to seven minutes. Wow. And the third type is vision videos, vision videos that we also tell like a, like a narrative or a story. And um, so the, the filmmakers, they apply all their, lo- you know, their knowledge of location, mm-hmm. editing, cutting, you know, all that stuff. And they just have a blast doing it. Um, I've only been the pastor at Emanuel Church for about a year. Um, and then so I was, you know, seven months into it and COVID hit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what we were working on uh, before COVID. Um, yeah. So, so we've done that. I've started a fellowship of artists um, in order for artists to... Have a space to um, grow spiritually and to find fellowship with each other, and the things that we pray about oftentimes are very different from the accountant and the, you know, the engineer because, you know, artists are always gigging. They're always trying to pitch. They're always trying to find opportunities. So the the kind of prayer requests and how we pray for each other is a little bit different. And there's some there's two other things that I'll, I'll mention about one, which is and we've done these kind of various forms of art benefit events, and that's where I combine three things theology, art, and social justice. So we've done these art benefit events um, where we have different disciplines of artists. Like one example has been um, how we address depression. Um, Last year we did this. And um, we had 12 visual artists. We had writers writing original scripts to perform live on the small stage. There were shorts. We had live music. We had uh, spoken word. And it was all around the, the, the theme of addressing depression and finding hope. So people Mm. came, we had 200 and some people come from the community and they were experiencing this from various creative disciplines, you know, from visual to what was theatrically performed to spoken word. And we had a a dance uh, person too. And not all the artists we had were Christians. So about Mm -hmm. 25% of them actually were Mm non-Christians. So it was a way to bring them into being a part of a, a cause that is theologically founded. I will share that with them. And and they were all for it, you know. Non Christians are not threatened by our theology when they're when the theology is um, connecting with them on a very human level, and they 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 sense that that's what their work is for. It's for a greater purpose that God is aiming for, you know. Um, and then the last thing that we did last Halloween uh, before the shutdown was we we, we did a. a it was called the Imagine Halloween Event, and that's where we involved set designers, costume makers, actors, animators, photographers, and we did this whole. We we took our parking lot and created like these various lands that kids would get dressed up and they go through, and in these lands, they you might you might encounter Thor performing on a, on a stage and he's engaging with the kids. Mm-hmm. There's some of our animators teaching art lessons, and you know there's a steampunk land. There's a a land where you get your picture taken and your Um, photoshopped onto a background of your choice you know and so and we had these professionally designed sets you know and I remember talking to the the lady who was largely responsible for the set designs because it was her company that produced it and I, I was just so thankful to her about it and I want to be a little sensitive about hey you know this is taking a lot from her resource wise time wise you know and she expressed to me she serves in a couple of other areas in our church but she says this is what I do this is how I'm going to serve the lord and it spoke to me because here's a a creative person who serves in other areas of the church but given the opportunity to serve in the way that's her her main thing in life you know i mean mm-hmm. she felt like that was her sense of purpose in it um, and it was it was fantastic you
0: know yeah. you know and I, that's so important because that's how god made her and that's how god has animated her the the things that she gets excited about and i think again for so many people we have we have got we have got to be the catalyst we have got to be we you know cuz we we are the gatekeepers in many ways if we're if we're leading churches and ministries to to people who have certain gifts and just feeling like well because i don't because i'm not academically you know inclined or i don't speak well or i don't whatever i you know I, I these are the things that maybe are not as obvious that i do that could be used for the kingdom of god they just think there's no purpose for them and i think that was really cool that the fact that she said no this is you know she came alive because you opened the door and allowed it to happen and and i i want to go back to what you said about about the artists in your art show that weren't believers because i i think you said they had no problem with it and it almost goes back to that conversation we had a little while ago about about story if if they felt like this was something that you were trying to force a certain message in they would have they would have seen the inauthenticity of it but you were trying to deal with a common problem like depression right you were trying to deal with a common issue and you were inviting everybody in cuz in a sense that that's such a beautiful way of reaching out to say, Hey, we all struggle with this. And so why don't you come and talk about and, and depict what, how, how you how you see this problem and, and we'll together create these pictures of this problem. And then, you know, yeah. other people might have a solution or whatever. And, um, but it's just a really great way to, I think, build, build connection with people because you're both sharing a common journey.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. It's it's a way for them to be a part of what um, I think we're fueled by, according to God's word, and they they get a taste of that, you Yeah. Know? and um, they get to see our faith from the inside, versus oftentimes an outreach. They're seeing our faith from the outside, they're as recipients.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I tell you what, I mean the, the stuff that you're doing, I I love, and I think everyone that's listening to this needs to think about. I mean, how cool? Because you know, to do a testimony video, but actually like you said, make it like a narrative or, um, you know, be really creative with how you tell a person's story. Cause like everybody, I believe everybody's story is interesting. Mm-hmm. Everybody's story is interesting. If you can understand what really happened to them and what really drives them, cause it's, it's the human story, you know? And, right. and then, and then if, if redemption is part of that, that just makes it, you know, that makes it the greatest story because that's, we're we're all kind of walking in the same on the same road and we all we all need redemption. So when you depict something like that, just to make it interesting is such a beautiful thing. So I have to ask you then, because I said this at the very beginning, you are a kung fu master. In addition to pastoring a church, being a professor at Biola and Talbot, and being the member of an art society, I mean, I, I'm sitting here going. What does Brian Chan not do? Um, and you are a kung fu master, so tell us, like, t- tell us briefly about that. What that means, and then, like, how do you incorporate that? I mean, that's because it's a martial art, right? I mean, it's an art form. It's you know lethal or whatever. You can break someone's neck, but even uh-huh. in, that in and of itself is an art form. So, how does that tie into all of this conversation as well?
1: Yeah, you know, kung fu has a lot of um, principles about life you know and um, philosophy in it and there's a, going back to the the idea that um, all beauty you know is God's beauty mm-hmm. or it points to God or all truth is God's truth where I find truth in philosophies of kung fu I align it with scripture you know and um, and it's the same thing as an artist if my if my students know that I, I know what I'm doing I'm not just a fake you know and I'm not just a pretender but they know what I'm doing, they're a lot more apt to hearing me, you know? So when I explain things from Kung Fu, from a philosophical standpoint, and I tie it in with something theological, they receive that, you know? First, they trust me and I have a rapport with them. I have credibility. And the second is that there's a seamless kind of integration. There's that integration concept again. Um, And it's not seeing things in the world as so distinct from God's truths. And, Mm. and, And because of common grace, it allows for things to be interwoven very seamlessly. So I've had a lot of spiritual conversations um, with my Kung Fu group. Uh, I've, I've done um, fight choreography. I've been hired before to, to train some people for feature films. And many of, the, of my students were, were not believers. And, uh, and so I've gotten to share the gospel with some folks. And when, I, when their Sifu or their master asks them, hey, you want to grab lunch together? They never turn me down. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we get to sit and, and talk and, and it opens up relationships. In that way, you know, and there's something very bond, um, bonding about Kung Fu. You know, when you train together, it develops natural community. So just in that regard, it provides me a, a context for being able to be a witness uh, there.
0: Yeah. And I see and I'm telling you, Brian, we've already gone over an hour there. I mean, I could go two more hours talking with you. One of the things I'd love to talk with you about in another podcast is even just, uh, the, the Eastern, um, dynamics, the Eastern philosophies, uh, and how, you know, how, what bridges you can build, um, mm-hmm. through, because, because, because the, and the reason why I think that's so important is, is, for example, like I've read that like a lot of our, a lot of Silicon Valley, I mean, it's just, they've gone all Eastern philosophy. It's not like they're total, they're not, it's not like the old, you know, Western minded business leaders of old that just kind of are like quasi-Christians who don't really believe anything, but they just kind of live by Western values. I mean, these are people that are deep, a lot of these people, like for example, that are leading these big giant tech companies and others, these younger people are very much into Eastern mysticism and that sort of thing. And, and you see, you, that is still continuing to creep into our country in a lot of ways, into our culture, I should say. And you know, we're going to be needing to think about how we can better bridge, um, bridge that, not by just eliminating it and then adopting Western values and then finding Christianity, but actually bypassing Western thought altogether to, to, to find the road to Jesus through, the, through Eastern um, thought, if that makes any sense.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. I know what you mean.
0: Yeah. I mean, that'd be an interesting conversation to have. So gosh, I just, this has been so fun to talk to you. And uh, I, I love what you're doing there in Burbank. I mean, you're clearly God's man for this. And this is why I wanted this. You're one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is I want our EFCA West pastors to know and, and, it, and I believe this about every every single person that that there is something interesting um, in the in the location and context that you're in and we have rural church pastors that are doing fantastic stuff that no one knows about um, you just happen to be in a unique part of the of the nation and doing unique stuff and I love the fact that you're in a place like Burbank and you're not like this total countercultural guy that just doesn't fit there at all they just hired you because they needed a pastor and you you don't care about TV or art or music or you know any of that stuff. You just you know I just I'm just glad that you're the right guy for that area. Uh, it just makes a lot of sense, and I have great hope. Again. Be, that, that the Evangelical Free Church of America can do what it's supposed to do, and that is get the gospel into whatever locale God has placed you and placed us. So wherever we are, we just we don't wonder like, oh, why should we be here? It goes back to Jeremiah uh, 29, you know, um, seek the peace of the city into which I've sent you into exile. And I, I see you, you doing that, and that's just awesome.
1: Thank you, Tim. And I want to say to you too, Tim, that uh, you were one of my first coaches when I started off as a church planter and left some uh, impressionable marks on me. And so I'm I'm glad, I'm thankful for what you're doing right now as our um, superintendent. And thank you for all that you're doing.
0: Well, it's been fun. This is this is definitely a kick. I I love every day. I really do. So listen, um, if if a church wants to talk to you, if a pastor wanted to call you and just say, hey, Brian, tell me more about what you're doing. Give us your email and um and 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 that. So the website. Oh, by the way, the book. I gotta say the book one more time. The book is called The Purple Curtain: Living Out Beauty in Faith and Culture from a Biblical Perspective. You gotta get it. You gotta read it. And you gotta uh, think about how you can incorporate and shepherd the artists and cultivate the artists that are. Already there, as you said, in your church, realistically, no matter where you are. And then, and then your um, your email, then one more time.
1: So, my email you can email me at brian.chan at emmanuelburbank.org. And that's brian, an E. Emmanuel. Yeah, Emmanuel, correct. Yeah, yeah, Brian with an C H A N at emmanuelburbank.org. Great. That's the best way to reach me.
0: And then, and then Brian C Chan, Brian, B-R-I-A-N-S-E-E Chan.com for your artistic stuff.
1: Yeah. For my website. For your art. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Awesome. And I, I'm going to look up this, uh, Fujimura guy as well. Yeah,
1: man. Check out his works. Yeah. His works are inspiring. They're deep. Yeah. That's awesome,
0: man. I, th- I just appreciate this. Um, and, uh, we'll stay in touch and yeah, this has been totally fun. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, brother.